into your house this morning. Thank you, Spirit, for bringing your presence. And thank you, Jesus, for being at the center of this community, giving us purpose, hope, and light in this dim world. Amen. So we're meeting here today on the traditional land of the Coast Salish, Stolo, and Kwatlin Nations. And our acknowledgement is meant to be a respectful statement of appreciation of their love and care for this land and to acknowledge that we live here in peace at their cost. Um, so whether you're here for the first time, hopefully not the last time, uh, whether you're a visitor, um, committed visitor, or regular attender, um, no matter what, you're more than welcome here. Uh, I grew up in a church where the understanding was that I needed to dress up for Sunday morning and behave like a good little girl. The expectation was that we would leave all our baggage at home and come to church all sweet and smiley. But there came a time in my life when I learned, and I do believe I discerned this with God, that was far more important to be real than good. What that means to me is if I'm sad, I'm welcome, to bring, I'm welcome to bring that sadness with me right into church. If I'm very, if I'm mad or I'm hurt or I'm frustrated or unforgiving, I bring it all. Because bringing it allows me to have a very authentic relationship with God, who is not at all surprised by my feelings or my state of mind. So this welcome comes with permission. You're welcome to bring your baggage here, every difficult thing in your life. And if I understand anything about Jesus, it is that he welcomes our humanity, our weakness, our strength, our hopes, and all. We are going to have communion in a couple of minutes, but before we do that, um, we're going to have a round table. Um, here at the bridge, we value having as many voices in the mix as possible. We have endeavored to do this while we were meeting via Zoom, and we went to con want to continue making space for more voices as we meet live. This might seem a bit strange if you haven't been with us uh, over the last year or two, but bear with us. We will be making space for interaction and sharing most Sundays because we see that having more voices sharing has strengthened our bonds as a community. So we will call this next component of the service the round table, even though there is only one round table in the room and we're not going to be around it. Um, we will get into groups no larger than four to share our responses to the question that I will be posing. We encourage everyone to make a brief response to the question, though you are welcome to pass if you want. The questions are not random. Uh, we have prepared them as a primer for the sermon to come. So today's question is, what were you taught about your imagination as a child? Always. Always. 
So, Jesus, thank you for Karina. Thank you for the gifts she brings to us in this community and for the willingness she has to share them with us. So I ask that you bless her this morning to speak um, what she's prepared with boldness, um, like I need to give her permission, um, and, um, and that she would just feel the words that she's prepared and understand that they were given from me. Yeah, I always feel a little nervous when I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I have something to say. But then I have like, you know, we, we come with our stories. We come with our history. And sometimes the fact that I'm here in a female body preaching in front of people always feels a little weird at the, the first time I get up here. But um, I hope you enjoyed your conversation for the roundtable discussion. I appreciate your participation in that. And I think it's all hopefully going to make sense by the time we get to the end. So we're in the third week of Lent, according to the lectionary. <clears throat> we are using uh, the Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church by womanist theologian Will Gaffney. It's a good time. And the thing that rose to the surface for me as I studied the passages this week and considered our overall theme at, of, of Jesus at the center was this. There is no way I can make sense of this. It can't be done with the scripture we have this week. I mean, come on, Gaffney. Give me a Jesus story I can work with here. Um, because Jesus stories are, are like, they're so good, right? And, and I'm kind of fond of Jesus. But Jesus at the center of every story can feel tricky sometimes. And then I kind of got curious about, like, what was this mental block that I had? And why did it feel so tricky? And what if I was free to explore, to imagine? And then I could see my resistance. This would require imagination, and that's something that kind of feels antithetical to Bible reading, and certainly to preaching as a woman up here. So maybe you're like me, and you came from a tradition that trained us to love right answers and certainty. Things like emotions, mystery, not so cool. Um, phrases like, I'm not sure. Or, let's imagine together were not phrases I associated with much of my life, but especially not when it came to God, the Bible, or church. So I don't know if anybody here can relate to that, but that's kind of what was coming up for me. And, and imagination was really, until recently, never a part of my faith. It was reserved for art class and creative writing, and that was about it. So as I thought about this week, I remember that my imagination was something that used to get me into real trouble when I was a kid. <laughs> I remember one time, um, maybe grade one, I was new at the school, and I found myself playing at the edge of the playground with one of the cool girls. So here I was. Okay, this was not my normal experience, too. Let me just, cool kid, not me. Okay, so um, we were playing by the, by, by the edge of the, the field, and I was about to learn one of the first of many nothing good happens rules for life. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? Like the ones our mothers told us when we were dating and asked for a curfew extension, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. when you're dating. You can be home by 10 p.m. I don't know why my mother suddenly became a southerner, but here she is. Those kind of rules. So at the young age of six, I was about to discover that nothing good happens at the edge of the playground. Our school was bordered by older homes. Um, on the one side, and this girl, I think her name was Carly, and we were, we were playing by this solid fence panel, and we swore we heard something. What was that? 
It's a dog. No, a cat. Suddenly, imaginations activate. We looked at each other with wide eyes. Maybe it was a someone. I mean, hadn't we just learned about stranger danger in class? We couldn't really see at all through the fence panel because, I mean, we were six and we were short, but this no longer mattered because what mattered is that there was probably a, a stranger and a bad guy doing bad things there, and by the time the lunch break was over, the story was starting to spread. And I don't know if it was hours or days later, I mean, it's been a while since I was six, but I do know that at some point I got called to the principal's office, and the details are, are fuzzy because I, I was in the principal's office. And there was like a police officer involved or the threat of a police officer being involved if it was true that there was a bad guy. So were we telling the truth or were we lying? Did it really happen or did we imagine it? I was terrified and ashamed that my imagination had gotten me into so much trouble. And this is when I learned another rule. Nothing good happens when you let your imagination run wild. Imagination and lying are kind of the same thing. And girls who love God should stay away from either of them and boys after 10. As soon as I grew up, I also learned that our, in church, imagination was also not really to be used. I mean, we could use it to picture the right version of something, but that's about it. Imagination was not a way we prayed or a tool, definitely, that we used to interpret the Bible. We needed apologetics. We needed the right answer. We needed to build our lives on correct biblical foundations and have accurate, neutral, objective, imagination-free, biblical worldview. Sounds like fun. Why are people leaving the church? I don't know. Okay. Um, the Bible was a book about God and God's journey trying to save humanity from their badness, including saving lying six-year-old girls. And I kept thinking about all the things I was told with such certainty. When we read in the Bible that God said, it means God said. When we read God did, it means God did. And we treated the Bible like this transcript of the live on the scenes news report of things that gave us just the facts, ma'am, about what really happened. So where am I going with this? Good question. Hopefully somewhere. The first two sections for this week's lectionary are found in the Hebrew Bible from uh, Genesis, starting in Genesis 3, verse 8. I'm going to read most of the Genesis part and then just like touch in on some of the others. So, you know the story, Adam and Eve eat from the garden, and God's out walking, and then the sovereign calls out to the man and says to him, where are you? And the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Then God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to stand with me, and gave me the fruit of the tree, uh, and then I ate it. Actually, just while, while we're doing all these readings, pay attention to the God said, God did, God implied. Just notice how often it comes up here. And uh, the sovereign said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the sovereign God said to the serpent, because you've done this, 
Cursed are you among all herd animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that means opposition, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring, offspring will strike your head, and you will strike the heel of her offspring. And then to the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your painful toil and your pregnancies. In pain shall you birth children, and your desire shall be for your man, yet he shall rule with you. Rule with is Gaffney's very generous translation. Most, most versions will say over. Good news. <laughs> and to the man God said, because you have listened to the voice of your woman and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in painful toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistle shall it grow for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread until you return to the ground. Turn the page. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man, hearing this, that's me, I put those words in, named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the sovereign God made the garments of skin for the woman and the man, and clothed them. And see. Okay, the next thing here, just to keep things going, is Psalm 96. I'm just going to read a little section of it. Bow down and worship the Sovereign One in majestic holiness. Tremble in her presence, all the earth. Say among the nations, the ever-living God reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. God will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Then, on to Romans 8. You know, they keep making printing in these books smaller and smaller, don't they? It's not fair. Okay, Romans 8. This is the one that starts out, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it goes through all those things, and then it concludes with, knowing all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers that be, nor things that are, nor things that will be, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. And then finally, we round it off with Mark 13. And it says, Now, when you all see the desolate sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Isn't that funny? Like, these let the reader understand often show up in completely abstract passages that are really hard to understand, but let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The woman or the man or the housetop should not go down or enter the house or take anything out. And the one in the field should not turn back to grab a garment. Woe to those who have a child in womb and to those who are nursing infants. Infants, Pray that it's not winter, for in those days there will be affliction of such kind has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, no, and never will be. And if the living one had not cut short those days, no flesh would be saved. Rather, for the sake of the elect whom God chose, God has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you all at the time, look, here is the Messiah. Look, here is the Christ. Don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Dun, dun, so, that's that. <laughs> In Genesis, it seems like God is doing things and saying things and cursing things and doling out consequences. In the Psalms, God 
requires worship because he is so above and we are so below. There is trembling and there is rejoicing and there is goodness and there is judging. In Romans, God is on the side of the chosen people and nothing can separate chosen people from God's love. And in Mark, there's just a lot of talk about pain and strife and you better watch out for false messiahs. And is God making these things happen? I can't quite tell. It feels like these passages are full of contradictions. If we apply what I learned on the playground and in church, we have to say, yes, it's all God and it's all true. And if we feel like there are contradictions or opposites, that's because of our puny dum-dum brains that are the problem. God's ways are higher than ours. Imagination-free faith can have problems too. Might have even started you down the path of deconstruction. Might have made you make some nothing good happens rules that need undoing. So what about imagination? What do we do with it now? Here's just a few things I've learned about imagination or the lack of it. When people are experiencing chronic stress, chronic illness, chronic illness, oppression, marginalization, catastrophe, in short, trauma, one of the first things to go is the ability to imagine anything different. Like really, curiosity gets kicked in the pockets and staying alive and reclaiming safety is all that matters. And I know that trauma is a bit of a buzzword right now and maybe it feels like overkill, but I want us to consider that, that becoming trauma-informed is really just becoming informed of what it is to be human. Some of our biblical inter interpretations have been traumatizing. They are traditional, they're familiar, and we've had words and ways that we, we said to make them make sense, but it killed curiosity. It made us afraid to get it wrong. Told us that love hurts and violence is love. Reclaiming curiosity in our faith can be an important step to healing our fractured imaginations. Whether, and I want to say like, the people who wrote the Bible eons ago, or the people interpreting the Bible through history, the pain stories that lived within them and through them affect what we write, how we see, what we know, what we understand. Second thing is, whether we're in the midst of struggle or safety, humans are meaning-making creatures. The Bible is full, full of stories written by people trying to make sense of their world. Sometimes I find it more helpful, meaningful, and healing to think of the Bible as a very human book, telling the very human story of life and pain and how we have since the beginning of time tried to understand this idea of something that we call God in the middle of it. Third thing, imagination isn't the same as lying. It's asking what if, and then seeing how it works itself out. Imagining Jesus at the center of all of these stories can be a practice of looking back and finding a redemptive foretaste of the story of Christ to come. The fancy word for this is called looking for a Christ type. It's looking back and, and seeing in the story something that at the time was not named a Christ type. But knowing what we know now about Jesus, who shows us what God is like, 
we can find a better story. Sometimes multiple better stories in the same text. I appreciate so much what Brian Zond has said about this. Maybe, I think we, it's, it's come up here in our community before, but it goes like this. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but we do now. In this time of Lent, we're encouraged to give things up. My invitation to us today is this, that we might see that developing a practice of spiritual imagination that puts Jesus at the center can be a path towards giving up toxic and traumatizing theologies. It will let us hold questions without having to resolve them into toxic answers. Maybe we'll discover a God, or even a Bible, that's better than we could have imagined. It's like my friend Tabitha says, if we can imagine God to be better than we currently believe God to be, we have a responsibility to do so. And honestly, it feels a little bit scary to share how I found Jesus in these texts, because I might be wrong. I might be overstretching, but, and it's a big but, I cannot lie, I really believe, I really do believe that there is good news that feels like liberation and life for all of creation. So I have two rules that serve as my guardrails for my imagination. First, I am looking for the restoration of a relationship of goodness between things to be restored. In the Genesis narrative, when we hear God saying it is good, it's using the Hebrew word tov, which doesn't just mean this book is good. It means the relationship between me and the book is good. It's an excellent guardrail because right now there are people for whom things are good. It's, and I love, love, love all of the straight white men in my life, but it's really good to be a straight white man. But it doesn't mean that the relationship between other people of different identities, different genders, different orientations is good. And we're looking for the restoration of goodness between those things. And the second thing is, I often look for themes of life, death, and resurrection. Because while it's a literal story of Jesus, it's also the way of Jesus. So in the Genesis story, Gaffney says that this creation accounts what's called an etiology. It's a story that explains how things came to be. Not just how did creation happen, but rather, why is now like this? What were the dominoes that were knocked over to get us here? That's what etiology is. And it's very likely, though not known for certain, that this book was written in a time of captivity for the people of Israel, fifth or sixth century. In that time, in captivity, life is hard. People are suffering. They are at the bottom of a society that divides people up by, by caste, by, a, what's the word, um, power. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hierarchy of power. So um, they're wondering, maybe, they're trying to understand, how do we get in this mess? How did we end up here? Who's to blame? And what does that mean God is like? So when I read the verses that talk about who is to blame, I hear, first of all, mostly it's Eve, it's Adam, 
it's the serpent, and I hear God cursing the serpent in the ground and kind of reading Eve and Adam the riot act for how terrible God will make their life because they were so bad and they need to pay for that. And I wonder, is that like God? Is that like Jesus? I don't know, or, or is it people trying to make sense of a really hard existence and seemingly inescapable pain? What if they're so stuck in their trauma that they can't imagine anything different than the systems and structures that exist in front of them? They just gotta explain them. There's hierarchies, there's hardships, and they can't imagine anything except that God must have wanted it to be this way. Have you ever done that? I totally have. Like, where is God when life is hard? Where is God in our dysfunction, in our broken, messed up structures and systems? We hear in Genesis what sounds almost like a curse from God over Eve and all the women that follow her. Like, not really, but almost. The pain of childbirth, monthly cycles, feminine toil and struggle. This has been the truth for those that identify as women throughout history and even today. I mean, it might not be, you know, like God's plan, but it is a reality that has been used to limit and lessen the role of women in so many places and spaces. To be a woman or be perceived as having feminine qualities in that society was and continues to be a low blow. So with hopefully a little more wisdom and grace than when I was on the playground, I let myself imagine. What if this section in Genesis wasn't the way God wanted it? How can we bring a Jesus-centered lens that disrupts dominance and redeems what's been made shameful and pushed to the margins? And then, I remember, I wish Brad was here right now because he'd know that like I was listening during a lecture, but I remembered something about the early church. The imagery of the blood and water that flowed from the side of Jesus on the cross was interpreted by the early church mothers with this feminine imagery of birth. That in his death, Jesus gave birth to the church. Women could see themselves in Christ with this metaphor. And it, it made me wonder. I imagined, what if Eve isn't the problem but a Christ type? What if Christ can be found in the bodies of those that are considered less? I think even at this point in history, women scientifically, the science of the day that everybody agreed to was that women were failed men. Something happened while they were growing in utero and instead of becoming a proper human, they became a woman. It's important because that influences how they think about women, right? It's hard to imagine something different. But if I look back with the Jesus lens and I see Jesus in the pain and brokenness that women endure for the sake of new life, it's an echo from the past that reveals Christ who endured the pain of the cross to conquer death and establish life everlasting. What if, what if monthly cycles aren't just a stupid curse for being the first one to sin, but an embodiment and a reminder of our participation with Christ in the constant cycle of life, death, and letting go that makes room for new life again. What if that's what it means to be a woman? And before you know it, these four texts that seemed at odds with each other began to inform one another in my imagination. It's true in the Psalms, we often hear about worship and it's about God and it's really hard for us not to just like 
cast a monarchist view on that, where we've got kings and we've got peasants, and we just like, oh, woe is me. But I wondered, Jesus does cause abuse of power to tremble because it refuses to use the to, to use the tools of the empire to overcome the empire. Where is Jesus hiding in the text? Suddenly, I can imagine what it would have sounded like for people to hear that God judges with equity, not creating levels of favor or classism. That sounds more like Jesus to me. One who judges with truth from the tree of life and mercy rather than knowledge that elevates me over you. That's good news. The judgment of God brings light in life. It doesn't curse and separate. In Romans, the list of all the things that cannot separate us from the love of God is long, and it includes creation. What if we imagined that that included our creation narrative? What if our biggest mistake was believing that because life was hard and we were hurting, that must mean that God caused the separation and wanted it to be that way? I love how I get to reimagine that story with Jesus at the center. And, and I just want to be clear, putting Jesus at the center is not fix it Jesus, or Jesus take the wheel Jesus, or I can pretend everything is like, while everything burns around me. It's Jesus in the center of the hurt, of the pain, of the confusion, of the questions. It's Jesus that says, I will not leave this moment. You don't have to be better for me. I will stay with you. I am here for you. And finally, in the book of Mark, sometimes it kind of sounds like um, Jesus is cursing women all over again. But Gaffney pointed out, it's more like Jesus is saying, this is what happens when people refuse to participate with empire. It gets messy. The text in Mark talks about the perils of those who refuse to bow to systems of violence and power. And then he says, beware of false messiahs. Man, who grew up being so afraid that you were worshiping a false messiah? Was, was it like literally just me? Oh good, thank you. We can have a meeting in commiseration afterwards. Um, but I just, I wonder if the false Christ is anyone who uses the name of Christ to justify violence, to establish power over rather than power with and power for. I remembered how many times in history the name of God, the power of the church, the image of Jesus and the cross has been used to advance empire rather than subvert it with the self-giving, other-centered, radically forgiving love of God seen in Jesus. Jesus doesn't condemn and judge like we condemn and judge. Jesus restores our sight and renews our vision of the world, a world Jesus loves, a world God loves so much. So in this season of Lent, we're invited to let things go. And it seemed maybe a little silly to do a sermon on imagination without us maybe having a moment to practice some imagination together. So if you want to, I want to invite you to consider closing your eyes, putting your hand on your heart. The reason I put my hand on my heart often is to remind myself that my body is good. And being connected to my body is good. God made my good body and loves our incarnation. Jesus never stopped being a human, and neither should we. So put your hand on your heart if that feels right. 
And I invite you to ask Jesus, is there something about you, about the world, about the Bible, that you are being invited to reimagine? Or even just to say, I don't know. Where is Jesus bringing about Tov? Restoring a relationship of goodness. Do you see themes of life, death, and resurrection happening? Do you see Jesus saying, I see you. I see you doing this with me. Is there something new for you to hold on to? To let go of? What bridge will your imagination build for you this morning? And can we receive it as a gift? Jesus, I thank you for our imagination. I thank you that it is a tool to restore our fractured relationship with ourselves, the world, with one another. And I pray that you would bless us to imagine new things, to hear things in new ways, to be free to become the good news that you have always believed we are. Amen.